listening to the Exile Hour. Hosted by Kayla Jackson Dills and Evan Phillips. We hope you enjoy the show wherever you are in the world time zones. Remember, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening. In the 50s and 60s the CIA funded modern American art as a tactic to prove cultural superiority over communist countries during the Cold War. Welcome to the Exile Hour. I'm Caleb Jackson Dills. And I'm Evan Philip Lipson. Today we've got uh, Today, Tonight, Tomorrow, Forever, Sean Partridge. Yesterday. Uh, Sean Partridge, Partridge in a Pear Tree, one of the founding members of the Partridge Family Temple, which was a um, was and continues to be uh, a religion founded on the love and adoration and worship of the Partridge Family television show songs. Uh, I don't know what else they do, but yes, like Jungian archetypal deities. Um, each one had, you know, Danny was the Loki sort of trickster god, Danny Bonaducci. Uh, Keith is like the uh, kind of like sex god, um, so on and so forth. Shirley, the mother, I think was like the, um, the you know, the virgin mother. And uh, television is God, as far as Additionally, I understand. Additionally, Sean was part of the unpop art movement, which uh, he worked alongside with Boyd Rice, um, Adam Parfrey, uh, Nick Nick Bugas, um, Brian M. Clark, Nick and Bugas. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was kind of like an invert. It was a, uh, it was kind. I guess not necessarily a straight inversion of pop art, but a uh, how how would you describe it? I think the idea was that they were taking rather dark or unsavory thematic material or subjects, and then sort of filtering it through. Uh, pop art aesthetic, trying to make it fun, groovy, entertaining. Um, so, you know, things like a classic Warhol day glow silk screen of, but it's like Anne Frank or something. Um, but yeah, this was, was kind of going on in the, I think the late nineties or early two thousands, um, kind of predating, um, period in which this became looser in, into the culture. People, you know, like Sarah Silverman and others were like doing, doing comedy that, that was kind of the same thing, but they were, they were kind of doing that when that was, that was still like sort of controversial. Um, but yeah, Sean is, uh, I think brought to the, to the Partridge family temple, the whole idea of, uh, 24 seven fun, fun is the law that became the sort of, uh, overarching concept of, of and uh, all right, let's get Sean on the horn. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Albuquerque, chocolate bar, and there you are. Hey, Sean, how's the world out there? Oh, you know, it's fun. It's fun as well. The world's really fun right now, isn't it? Is it is it possible to have too much fun? I I think so. I think that's what you know. Overdoses are and stuff like that. What is what is by your definition? How do you define fun? Uh, well. Whatever floats your boat. I mean, you know, fun. Fun is a law. So, I mean, I have fun just going to McDonald's. That's fun for me. And McDonald's is kind of fun. It's a very fun place, and people hate it. You know, 
when you wear like a McDonald's arches, it's like wearing a swastika, you know, I, I, people will glare at you and get really, really mad. It's funny. I've seen, you know, people just get really bad. I was at some film, this guy having a, a, like a horror movie, slaughter, gore type of grindhouse stuff. And out of McDonald's flag, he's like, that's really great. You should just get a McDonald's M tattooed on your forehead. And I go, that's a great idea. <laughs> And he was just so mad about McDonald's. It's like amazing. I, I see they keep removing the playgrounds from McDonald's. That's that's upsetting. Yeah, that's really depressing. And and things really haven't been the same since they changed the Hamburglar. You know, because the Hamburglar used to look like a villain. And then he made him look like a little round-faced kid. And um, that really bummed me out because he looked great. And then I have a weird conspiracy theory that it was because the Hamburglar looked like a sort of stereotype uh, anti-Semitic caricature. That was one of my theories. Do you, uh, Evan, when you look at the, when you look at the Hamburglar, do you see yourself? <laughs> it's like looking <laughs> in a mirror. Yeah. The, the, the uh, Hamburger, Hamburger Stein may have been the original name. That was like Ellis Island. They just shortened it to Hamburglar. Hamburglar. Right. Hey, <laughs> hey, you know what you're going to do here in America, man. But but he was so great looking. He was so cool looking. And then also, I was like, scared about a little round-faced kid. You know, it didn't make any sense. And they changed him again a few years ago to an actual man. And it was like almost like a sexy Halloween costume. And that didn't take off. People didn't like that. I think some people said that he looked like a rapist. Just associating uh, burglars with all deviant activities. It was, it was also like the, I remember the Noid that was like a Domino's thing. Yeah, He's also yeah. kind of like a deviant trickster. Yeah. and what, That went away as well. Wait, yeah, something happened. Oh, God, I forget. It was something really far out. Like, someone like, oh, God, I can't believe I forgot this. Something wonderful happened. Like, someone became obsessed with him and killed himself or something. And they had to take the character away. It was one of the weirdest stories. Because I wondered where he went because he was so popular. I read this, like, a few years ago. I you should look it up. It's It's pretty amazing. I think that someone literally became obsessed with the character or dressed like the character, threatened people or killed himself or something weird happened. And they had to like discontinue it. The Noid went the way of the void. Yeah. There's a lot of weird things. I remember like, uh, do you remember uh, Crazy Horse Malt Liquor? No. No, I, I don't know if I remember it. It was around briefly and I bought a bottle right away. I go to my uh, old lady kaleidoscope. I said, you know, this is not going to last long. Who would name a malt liquor Crazy Horse? You know, it's just like proud Native American on there. I go, I go, and sure enough, like, you know, a few months later, there's like people like, I can't believe, you know, and it was discontinued. I had a story, speaking of about the um, positive feeling or vibration of McDonald's, this this friend who had a great response uh, witnessing an escalating encounter in a McDonald's in Philly and... Um, these guys were about about to get into like fisticuffs or something. And he broke it apart with the, the best way possible. He just said, hey, 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 guys, guys, you're being negative in a positive place. <laughs> Far <laughs> and, out. And they kind of realized this is like holy ground, you know, like, we, can, yeah, that's right. We can't. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> we can't fuck with this. That's one of the best things yeah. I've heard. That's, that's I incredible. That. I, uh, but I went to McDonald's last year and I wish I could have talked to this person more, but I walked in. And this fat black chick was coming out. She had a really big smile on her face. And she looked at me. She goes, you enjoy that McDonald's? And she had these big bags of McDonald's. And she, <laughs> she goes, you enjoy what you're going to order? 
And I thought she was fucking with me, <laughs> but she really dug McDonald's. And I, I, I kind of wish I could have like hugged her or something. I've never seen, but she's like, enjoy what you're going to order. Like she was really, really happy about it. And, you know, and I was like, wow, she, she, she got it, man. Because when I got into McDonald's, I liked it when I was a kid. And then I had this epiphany. I was at McDonald's. I was uh, by the McDonald's by my mom's house in Colorado. I was in line. And all of a sudden, I got this weird sense of euphoria. And I was looking at the people that worked there. And they were getting the Big Macs and the filet fishes And everyone was waiting in line and looking at the menu. I go, I just felt like I was one with all of them. I was the customer. I was the employee. It was like... I go, I almost screamed out with joy. Like, I go, oh, it's going to be so fun. Like, you look at the menu. Do I want a blue-wrapped filet of fish? Do I want a Big Mac, a quarter pounder with cheese, maybe two cheeseburgers and a medium fry, a milkshake, or possibly a soda, or an orange drink? And I just realized how great McDonald's was. And I just started going there obsessively and just, I, I love the place. In fact, that is one true addiction, is I have a fast food addiction. And we uh, went vegetarian for a few months. It was really hard. And uh, then I stopped eating at McDonald's. And I didn't eat at McDonald's for three years until I saw the Ray Kroc movie with Michael Keaton. And I fell off the wagon. And it was just too much. It was too much, man. And we, and we had planned to go to McDonald's directly. What was your go-to? What, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a Big Mac man. I love the Big Mac. I like a Big Mac and a small fry. Oh, hell yeah. Me too. Oh, they're so good. They're magical. And now that they have breakfast twenty four hours a day. That's so groovy. The Big Mac is a is a classic. I also like um. I like the the di- they still have the hot mustard dipping sauce. And you you what you do you dip your fries or the uh, chicken McNuggets? I'll dip the fries and the nuggets. Okay. I, I, I double down when I go. I don't know many people that like dip. I'm always curious people dip fries into mustard. That's shocking to me. Yeah, I, I'm a dipper. Yeah. No, I like dipping, but it's got that vinegar vibe to it. People put like vinegar on fries sometimes. Yeah, I can see that. Like, yeah, there's a good place by our house, and there is like a like a uh, a special kind of mustard, and it is yeah, it's more vinegary. It's like a barbecue mustard, and so it does. I can see that. But like some people put ketchup on uh, corn dogs, and that freaks me out because I think you should dip it in yellow mustard. But that's just me. Yeah, ketchup's for children. No, agreed. You don't like ketchup? No, yeah, I'm I'm not a ketchup guy at all. I can't do ketchup. Yeah, I always felt it was like for children. Interesting. They needed this the. Uh, the sweetness to like get it down. Ketchup? Yeah, it's just like a sugary tomato paste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we live in Portland, so there's a lot of organic uh, ketchup nowadays. And it's good, but it's it's like, you know, it's not like the sweet sauce. What was your take on the Rake Rock movie? I thought it was absolutely really wonderful. Um, I wish, the one thing I really wish, because Rake Rock, he would come to different McDonald's out of the blue. And if they weren't, he would watch. And if they were messing up, he would f- go right into the store and fire everyone. He'd fire the manager and all the employees. And I really wish they showed that scene. And because that was a great one. And another thing, there's the famous one where I wish they showed the scene where uh, this one guy had a hamburger place. And he says, you know, back then you, you, I saw the McDonald's being built across the street and I thought, Oh, we'll probably be able to exchange buns and stuff like that, and mustard, ketchup, and and I saw the McDonald's guy coming across the street, and I thought, oh, he'll probably say, hey, you know, we're opening up if you want to, like, you know, exchange things. And the guy says, hi, I'm opening this McDonald's, and I'm putting you out of business. And he walked back to McDonald's, and he goes, and they put me out of business. <laughs> and I, I thought that was great. So a few of the more harsher things would have been great in there. And uh, 
But other than that, though, I, 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 I think the thing about the the McDonald's commercial, I mean, the movie, I told my mother, I go, yeah, we're going to go see this Ray Kroc movie. And she goes, wait, wait, wait a second, Sean. Did you say there's a Ray Kroc movie? I'm like, yeah. She goes, I don't understand. Who would make a Ray Kroc movie? Who would watch that except for you? I go, well, no, he's like an American icon. She goes, it's like someone made a movie specifically for you. <laughs> well, anybody that reads his biography. Oh, have you read that? I still haven't checked it out. Oh, you got to grind that out. It's so good. And, and there's another good book, the unauthorized book called Big Mac. And that has really weird stuff in it. People think McDonald's is all straight and square. No way. When they started the Hamburger University, they had a, a room that was shaped like a womb with a gigantic waterbed that took up the whole floor and it was like had like pink lights, maybe some like weird music piped in there. And people would go in there and they'd lay on this big waterbed in this womb room. And it was like meditation. And so the idea was they'd come new ideas to help uh, sell McDonald's, better ideas. Uh, and so there's all this weird stuff. There's a chapter about how um, the first McDonald's in Harlem, they were like, oh, um, some people said, you know, uh, they might not like the clown. And they said, no, no, we tested. Clowns are universally liked by everyone. They go, well, we'll see. And they open the McDonald's. And there's a guy dressed like Ronald McDonald. And the, the, the black kids in the neighborhood chased him down the street, <laughs> throwing things at him and attacking him. They did not like Ronald McDonald. Not bowing down to the clown. Yeah, and it has the a chapter in about how, the, I don't remember, in the 70s, everyone was saying that they were putting earthworms to pad out the meat. And there's a big chapter about that in there. And uh, no, those are books. Ray Kroc is so fascinating. And, and the other thing about Ray Kroc that's interesting is him and Walt Disney were in the same, you know, platoon basically in World War One, and that's so amazing. Like two of the most important people that's ever ever lived on this planet. These two magnificent guru god geniuses, and they they could have been killed. You know, they're in World War One together. I remember reading Ray Kroc actually wrote a letter to Walt Disney when he was getting when he was getting started up. Uh, whenever like McDonald's was getting started up, and he was trying to franchise McDonald's and Disney World. Yeah, but then um, Walt never got the letter because it was just like a you know a secretary looked at it and sent back a like pre wrote letter. Mm. And then they uh, went back and honored it later, which is interesting. Because, um, the, uh, yeah, because like McDonald's and Disney didn't have a co- like a big collaboration until the 90s. I know that uh, Colonel, was it Colonel Sanders, I think, told Ray Kroc, like, if you ever start serving chicken, I'll be really pissed off. And, and they had like, I think, I think they had a gentleman's agreement for a while, but they started, they eventually started selling chicken. But uh, and, and Colonel Sanders, what a, he's an amazing character. You know, he, he's really fascinating. He he really is. I mean, God, he's cool. And like you know how Dave Thomas from Wendy's was, you know, worked for Colonel Sanders. You, have you seen that amazing picture where they're all dressed like Colonel Sanders? Have you seen that? No. Oh no. Yeah, back in the late sixties, like they'd have these meetings at like hotels and Colonel Sanders would be there and all the managers who from the different Kentucky Fried Chickens dressed like Colonel Sanders. It's like it looks like some weird cult or something like that. There's a picture of Dave Thomas. He has black hair at the time, and he's wearing a Colonel Sanders outfit. And, uh, I mean, that's just beautiful. And the outfits used to be so great in fast food. You know, they were so cool. And now people just wear, like, a T-shirt and a baseball cap. It's yeah, it's like airline stewardesses and fast food restaurant workers really uh, have, been a, have, have experienced a real fall from grace. <clears throat> a loss. But that's probably aesthetics overall. Thank you.
So do either um do like Ray Kroc and Walt Disney fit within the deities of the Partridge Family Temple or is, is there a place for them? Oh yeah, yeah, they're definitely a part Yeah, they're definitely a part of the Partridge Family Temple, you know. There's the Partridge Family, there's you know Ray Kroc, Walt Disney, there's the 902 and I don't know if you've ever watched Beverly Hills 90210, they're they're a part of it. The Banana Splits are a part of it. Um Mary Hartman is a part of it. Uh, John May Ramsey and Frank uh, Helen Keller and her guru, and her guru Ann Sullivan, the miracle worker, and uh, Bobby Sherman, who is time and death. And he's a part of it. And, I'm uh, really thankful you included the banana splits. That's the uh, <laughs> be- that's the best uh, TV show theme song for me. I know yours is probably. Uh, uh, well, I I love the parts there, but the banana splits is like one of the most amazing things. Because I used to hate the Partridge Family. I hated the Partridge Family. When I was a kid, I remember the very first time I saw the Partridge Family in the early 70s, which is strange because the music actually frightened me. It seemed like haunted house music, which is odd to think now. But I remember their images coming out of the black and it's like music. And I thought this is weird. And I had this irrational hatred of redheads with freckles when I was a kid. And in the 70s, that was really popular. Remember the the weird looking dude from the uh, Dunkin' Donuts? Uh, I don't know if I remember that. Do do you know what I'm talking? I forget it. Mason Reese or something. He he had he had some deformity, but he was young, so he was cute, and um, he like was the kind of spokesman for the uh, donut balls, yeah. the donut holes. But but he had red hair and freckles, and so Danny Bonaduce freaked me out. He had red hair and freckles, and uh, and I, I have a, a sadistic uncle Joey, and he had red hair and freckles, so I always had this association. And uh, my my sadistic uncle Joey was actually great one of the best people on the planet. He taught me so much. He came to live with us for eight months and he just tormented me, but he would do such cruel and weird things, but I'd kind of think, well, that's clever or that's smart. I'll try that one out later, you know? And he, he was like this like super weird genius guy. And he, uh, he was, great. I remember once he beat me up when I was in Albany, New York, visiting my grandmother. He took me out in the forest, started beating me up and he, but he was spitting on me. He was calling me an ass wipe. And as as I was screaming, I thought, "Ass wipe! What a great expression! I can't wait to use that." So he was a uh, he's he's a funny guy. He did some weird. He, he taught me a lot. He's he's one of my first uh, teachers. Really, was my uncle Joey. He uh, he sent a letter to my mom once, and the letter was rolled up like a piece of tape, like round. And you had to unroll it, and you could only read one word at a time. And as my mom read this, she started shaking and turning red, and getting more and more angry. And then she finishes, she said, damn it, Joey. And I remember thinking, like, to me, it was the, opened a door of endless poss- possibilities because I thought, 
you can actually do something as mundane as sending a letter and make it weird, you know, and strange. Like, I didn't realize you could just, I thought back then, like, golly gee, just send out a letter. I didn't realize you could make up a weird letter and just send it and the mailman would have to bring it. So He was like an amateur uh, mail artist. That was like a whole movement in the 80s. Yeah, because I remember I read about that, like, Throbbing Gristle would do that and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting how all the uh, industrial people now are getting, like, uh, there's this article about Psychic TV I read the other day. You know, people are saying, we need to reevaluate, you know, Genesis Peorage. And uh, and now they're saying about the uh, sleazy guy from Coil, he's a pedophile. I don't know if you're keeping up on this stuff, if you, if you capture into industrial music. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I'm not as much aware of the um, out- responses of outrage. Yeah, that, well, that's what's so fascinating. Like now they're like, well, should we listen to this music? And it's funny because the whole idea of industrial music was it was creepy and sinister and weird. And uh, but now you know we have to like reevaluate it. Should we listen to this? Is this good? Yeah, I mean the whole idea was that it was supposed to be like the most iconoclastic and dangerous and you know s- sort of f- fulfilling the legacy or promise of rock and roll and uh, the you know. In interest in uh, serial killers or fascist aesthetics and all of this stuff. But at the same time, like, uh, yeah, people like Justice Peorage or like Boyd Rice, like also like really into to like trolls and uh, troll dolls and, and like Tiki and stuff. Maybe at uh, one point in the near future to make industrial music more palatable, um, it, it will become like a family band, like we'll get like a Partridge family or like DeFranco family type <laughs> group of industrial musicians to, you know, make it, make it uh, more gentle and uh, family appropriate. A few years ago, I think like 11 years ago, noise music finally became this kind of hipster thing where well, these young kind of hipsters are doing noise music. And even though I didn't like the music, I loved the idea of it becoming like, see, I had this once I was at my dad's house, we we're having a barbecue. My dad was extremely stoned. And me and my friend, uh, guy Michael Monahan, were hanging out. And I wanted to listen to the band White House. And my dad hates loud music. He, of course, doesn't like noise music. And I, I convinced him, and me and Michael were just going back and forth, explaining that in England right now, this music is mainstream music, and it's as popular as the Beatles. And I remember, like, he, he was staring at the speakers, with the song "Shit Fun," and he's like, and he's like, "Yeah, they have, they were had, they have like these, you know, uh, mod bowl cut hairdos, and they wear like these cap jeans and sneakers and like parkas." I was basically kind of describing like Britpop people. I go, "Girls, chase them down the street. This is a hit song. This is as big as Eleanor Rigsby." And he's just looking at the, listening to the music and staring at us like, "Cause you can't really fuck with my dad. He's really good at fucking. You know, he's, he's real, really good at fucking with you." But we were both working on it. We slowly started to think, like, this is insane. This music is mainstream pop music. But I, I would love the idea of that actually happening. I think that'd be fab. Well, it's, it's interesting to me with what you guys were doing with the Partridge Family Temple, where, uh, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know the timeline exactly. So you started in the early 90s, and, but then I, I remember seeing all this stuff like later uh, VH1 and all these shows, like, uh, uh, what's like Austin Powers came out, like all this, all this, this stuff that was like, it was like the first uh, emergence of like retro culture or like celebrating. Um... Yeah, that, that's I, I remember like yeah, the temple started in, uh, the summer of '88, and um, and back then, yeah, people would kind of freak out. People were like, "Psychedelic clothes," or you know, but you know, not really. But uh, 
But what's weird to me, I think one of the most horrifying things is people got into the 80s, because I really hated the 80s, and then like in the 90s, and now people dress like the early aughts. I, I think the worst, because there's certain hipster fashion that looks good, because it's usually based on like the Velvet Underground or like, you know, the Stones. But all of a sudden, like about 15 years ago, this band, the Gossip, became popular. And all these guys had mullets and mustaches, and they wore stonewashed jeans and those Seinfeld big puffy white sneakers. And, you know, the idea was it was ironic, but I remember, like, it just, it bothered me. I go, you just look so horrible. It just, that to me is not hip. It's not hip, Daddy. <clears throat> the terminology, it's like uh, people that are, like, norm core. You know, I've heard of, I, I hate that expression, normie. People have called them normies. But the one thing, I hate that expression, foodie, but I shot myself on the foot. I hated the expression so bad. And then one day someone said, I'm a fast foodie. I go, fuck, I wish I had come up with that because I am a fast foodie. Because, like I was saying, it really is addictive. Like, I, when I didn't eat McDonald's and fast food, I'd go buy a, uh, a sign and I would just tremble. I was like, oh, God, get me to a McDonald's. There's nothing like the Big Mac. They're just truly magical sandwiches. And I used to like Burger King, but Burger King, I find, makes you feel kind of nauseous. My first job was at Burger King. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. It was... Um, Did, was it a bad experience, a good experience? Um, I guess as shitty as any fast food job would be when you're like a 16 year old um it took me a while to you know now i now i can appreciate a whopper every now and then but while working there i couldn't eat the food yeah my, my first job was mcdonald's and uh and that was great and i remember they it's something that they they would train people this way and i wonder if they just made it up or what but um i'm sure they discontinued this but when they were training me, and they did this to other people too, they go, okay, now when you're, when you're frying uh, French fries or the apple pies, if you drop one, do not reach your hand into the fry grease. It will pull your, you know, just, in a, obviously you don't need to tell me to do that. They go, they go, but people instinctually sometimes will just grab it because they want to do a good job. They go, there was this retarded kid who worked here, and he dropped the pie and put his hand in there and it pulled off all of his skin. And I wondered if it really was a retarded guy or if they just said that to kind of like, Oh, he's retarded. That's why he did that. I better not be a retard. I, I don't know. But it was a strange teaching uh, exercise. Speaking of uh, retarded people, I was on the bus the other day, and I actually saw my very first hip Down syndrome person. And I wanted to take a picture, but I, I go, that'd be rude. So I get on the bus, and this very doughy, soft-looking Down syndrome person, a guy, but he had a hoodie on. He had those Beats by Dre headset on. He had sunglasses on. He was chewing gum really tough. He had baggy pants on, and he was mean mugging the bus. Like he like he kind of stood, kind of glared. He was like taking a stand really quick. And I thought this is amazing and weird. But then I also kind of got sad. I realized that he's probably a really high functioning Down syndrome cat. And everyone looks at him and goes, "Oh, you're retarded." But he's obviously really high functioning. So his whole life will have will be never being thought of as anything but a retard you know what i mean and uh but i've never but he's like obviously like some he's all like i mean he's moving like all hips and stuff like that and it was fascinating yeah it was weird it was a weird thing you know and and then i thought of you you've watched that life goes on yeah with corky with uh, the retarded kid corky yeah remember that great episode where he did fight the power oh no i don't remember that oh he does this it's it's on youtube um i was i saw i was like in new jersey and just was on tv one day and he just, for some reason, I don't know why, he 
is in the school hallway and he just shows up and puts a boom box down. He has a leather jacket on, I think. And he just pushes uh, the, the button and fights the power plays. And he does this weird dance to it. And everyone stares at it. I remember going, what am I watching? Once Corky's fighting the power, then, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's over. When I went to Portland, uh, this friend's band was playing here. And um, this guy sat down and he was with his girlfriend. He didn't look like Corky at all. But I just instantly said, oh, my God, it's the actor who plays Corky. And I didn't break character. And I was like, really? I go, can I get your autograph? And his girlfriend's just like scared. I realized they were like on a first-time date, too. I think that's the thing. And and she's like kind of staring. And he's like, I'm not court. I'm not the not even doesn't have Down syndrome at all. And I keep saying, oh, my God, I love life goes on. And he actually, I you know, he signed my match, uh, matchbox, like, to Sean from Corky. Like he, he, he says, I just, I just acted really sincere. You could tell he was really embarrassing, confused. But uh, it was a funny, a funny memory, and and and, and that reminds one of my favorite things I ever did. And I wish I'd done this a few more times. If you want to ever truly have real freedom, feel real freedom. Um, my friend Tyler is this big, big German dude, like blonde hair, looked really normal, and he used to have a. Uh, a retarded cousin named Rusty, who was amazing because Rusty was super powerful. He, you couldn't let him when you had like family gatherings. Rusty, you'd be really careful because Rusty would go into the bathroom, pull the pipes out from the sink, and just scream. He liked doing that, and he loved coffee. And he would take that. You'd pour him a, a, a cup of black scalding coffee. He would slam it down his throat, and it wouldn't burn his mouth. Like, more, more. And he also hated Reagan. He was, I'm gonna kill Reagan. I'm going to kill Reagan. I'm gonna... And so they go like to like, you know, like Thanksgiving and he's like, I'm, I'm going to kill Reagan. I'm going to kill Reagan. And his grandfather is this conservative Republican guy. And he's like, okay, Rusty is retarded, but he would get really mad. You don't say that about the president. You don't say that about the I'm going to kill Reagan. And it was just like this guy. So anyway, so that was the inspiration. So me and my friend Tyler in Boulder, and, you know, Boulder is like, I don't know if you guys have been there. It was like a super hippie place. So we go to Safeway, and so I put on Tyler's big, puffy, white, dirty sneakers he, he wore at, uh, at uh, his job, Dairy Queen. I put these baggy pants on. I put a hoodie on. I tied it really tight so just a little of my face was showing. I think I might have put some Kleenex in my nostrils. And then we went to Safeway, and I just – I could not believe it. I just went around knocking aisles over, knocking cans off. I was like, knocking things off left and right. I, and, and Tyler's just going, Rusty? Rusty, I'm going to take you home. You think you're going to be good? And people would come up, and I think, okay, they're going to bust us. And they would just look so concerned. And finally, I went up to the stake. I just literally was going up to the stake and shoving my finger through all the stakes, you know, the, the saran wrap, poking them and poking them. And, and they were just coming. They, they couldn't stop me. I would knock things over. And I was like, it was like, the, I don't know if you have those dreams where you're like, all of a sudden you realize it's a dream. You just start destroying things. But that's what it was like. It's like, I could, it was like being in a dream. I was just knocking stuff over. Then we went in line, and this old lady walked up, and I turned around, and she screamed. I, she screamed, and then I started screaming really loud, hitting myself on the head really hard. And she started flipping out and convulsing, so that was funny. And then Tyler is like, Rusty, do you want to bring the food? you, you want the steak? And, and I go, yeah! And I put the steak down, and um, they were like, hi there. I couldn't believe it. They were like, how are you today? Oh, okay. And then... So then Tyler bought the steak and whatever else he bought. And as we left, he said really loudly, you embarrassed me, Rusty. So I'm going to beat you with the belt again. 
as a final uh, volley, it, it was good because you could tell everyone was just like horrified, like, oh, this poor retarded cat and his mean, mean, mean owner or whatever. But uh, that was a really fun day. It was a highlight of my life. Well, the grocery store is kind of a <laughs> appropriate place to do it because that's often the place, the only place that um, people with Down syndrome can find gainful employment. Oh, yeah, as a greeter. Yeah, or, or bagging groceries. Uh, or... I don't know if you know about Cospedita. Oh, yeah, in Denver? Yeah. Well, when you go in, you wait, wait in this big line. It's, it's, just, you know, it's like Disneyland and Taco Bell combined. And um, you wait in line, and uh, you finally get to this one area where you get your silverware and plates. And you can pick the color you want in the, the plates. For a very brief period, they had a Down syndrome person with the job. They created the job. That's what... And it slowed the line down. Because he would, you know what I mean? It would just, it just slowed everything down. And, uh, and then like two months later, he was gone. And, and then another weird thing about this, this haunts me because I, I, it was my imagination. But I was going through the line when I was a kid and you could, um, there's a window into the, uh, to the uh, kitchen and you can, you can see the old, uh, the old Mexican women or different women making the sofapillas. And I was looking and this one woman had tattoo, a tattoo on her arm of numbers. And I thought, is she a Holocaust survivor? It just seemed so weird. And like everyone's like staring through the window at her cooking sofa peas. It was one of the strange things. I don't know why she had numbers. I don't know if she was an actual Holocaust survivor. It was one of the stranger things. Yeah, that's a bizarre moment of uh, uh, what would they call it? These, I don't know, intersectional um, cultural appropriation. Or yeah, something. I don't think it was that. Um, uh, my mom, though, is really good. At, uh, she always associates everything bad with the Holocaust. It, like weird things. It's like she came to visit my sister. It was like a summertime, and my sister and her boyfriend said, "You can have the bed and the fan." It's like it was really it was a heat wave here, and my sister and her boyfriend are laying on the ground, and all of a sudden, my mom says from the other room, "It's like being in a concentration camp in here." And my sister and her boyfriend just started laughing. It's like we gave her the fan, we gave her the comfortable bed, but it's like a concentration camp in here. And I remember when I was a kid. We went to this restaurant. It was really kind of depressing. Like he just like was on hard times, and we're eating. And she's like, "I don't like this. This is the place where they take you before they take you to the gas chambers. This is like your final meal." She kept saying, and so I'm like, "Okay, you know, okay." She's telling me that my little sister's there, and then the waiter comes up and goes, "How was your meal?" She goes, "I don't like it one bit. I feel like I'm on my way to the, the concentration camp. This is my final meal. This reminds me of Dachau." And I just like I didn't know what to say. I was like 13 at the time. And I was like, what did you just say that to And the waiter or waitress had to just look at her like, what are you talking about? Why did you say that? Yeah, it's like uh, Godwin's Law, you know, where like the conversation, I think it refers to like discussions on the internet where after a certain period of time has elapsed, like it inevitably goes into talking about Nazis. But but she just, she, she that's like her, her go-to. That's like the first move. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's funny, yeah. She, and she'll bring it up quite often, like the weirdest funny thing, right? and, and, and such strange particular things. She brings up a lot of funny things, but uh but that one's a, always struck me as funny. Of course, now everyone's a Nazi. That's a hip thing, I guess, right now. Right, right. Well, yeah, they they're not so exclusive anymore. Anybody can join the club. Yeah. One, one thing I like is uh how they're called white nationalists now. I like how some guy with like, you know, just some regular Joe is like, I can see like saying you're a racist or something like I'm a racist, but you're a white nationalist. I'm sure people are like, what's a white nationalist? What? You know, it's just such a specific term, you know? Yeah. Well, all that stuff that was 
was just language uh, exclusively in the domain of academia has like really, really kind of uh, become the lingua franca. Oh, I was just thinking like, so apparently Trump, uh, him and his, uh, the army took out the uh, head of uh, ISIS, you know? And uh, I was thinking, like, I go, I was telling my wife, I was like, Kaleidoscope, think about this. Just a few years ago, this guy was on The Apprentice, and now he's somehow involved in taking out the head of ISIS. How weird is that? You know, like, you think, it's like, that's Donald Trump. And he's, and I, I was watching his speech, and he goes, we got him. He ran into an alley crying and whimpering and screaming the whole way. I'm like, it, it really is like being in a Borat movie 24 hours a day. Yeah, well, especially like going into that detail where it's like, like that, that's, I'm pretty sure that's all like classified information. And he's like going into like rather, rather like tawdry and lurid detail about, about like the kill. That's our comedian in chief. Yeah, he goes into the details of what they did. You know what I mean? I like you. On Twitter, he's always saying how, and he cried. This big, he cried like a baby. So Died like cried. a dog. The other day he called, the other day, he called uh, Republicans the old guard uh, human scum. And because what I do is I wake up and I, I, I like to see what Donald Trump says, and I'm half asleep, so it's even more surreal when I read what I go to. Just actually, and I have to always go and make sure it's not a fake tweet. Tweet, you know, like that. That can't be true. That he didn't actually say. I mean, of course, he did. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's very strange. You know, I got on Twitter because uh, Goat actually um, was saying, oh, you should write on there. It's a good forum for you. And and this guy, Sean Tetrarachi, is really funny. He's on there. And um, in the beginning, Twitter was this weird thing where a lot of people who didn't realize they were funny became funny. And so I, I would follow all these comedians and all these people who just were funny. And then when Trump became president, these people are not funny anymore. Like, make fun of the president. Make fun of Trump. But they never have anything very clever to say. They literally just scream and, and it's just like it, some of these people are really, really funny. And I'm just like, how did you like what? What happened? And they say things like, fuck you, orange man. They say every day. Can you imagine saying that every single day? And like people that drive me well, like Rob Reiner, Rosie O'Donnell, Nancy Sinatra, Cher, Bette Midler. These people are millionaires. They could build their own personal Disneyland in their backyard, but they're just so mad at Trump, but it's just so strange. It's like, do you have any other interests? I mean, there's a lot you can do. You have to have some degree of reverence for the for the subject. I mean, I think of like Chaplin doing uh, the Great Dictator or something. Um, you can see some sort of like joy, or, or um, I mean, it's it's not um, not like he's throwing out these honorifics or anything, but but it's like you know, there's there's kind of like like an admiration a little bit for this, this guy that's playing a character. And it's like also for him kind of personal. Cause it's like, a, you, you stole my mustache. Uh, I mean, you know, other examples like, uh, like Leibach, you know, that band speaking, going back to the industrial thing, like, like I find them to be really interesting and, and they're, they're doing it in a way where it's like not so obvious that they're necessarily coming from any kind of like liberal position. Um, and they're so convincing to the degree it gets into all these, these like levels and nuances where you know, they're invited as the first Western band to like perform in North Korea. This is outside of like an orchestra. This is insane. No, that was like the a highlight. That was perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's like the most fascinating cultural moment of the 21st century. Um, I mean, I think, I think this, this is kind of the, the right way to approach it. It's like you adopt and it, and also kind of reveals something about maybe our own nature, like that we, uh, 
we sort of enjoy this this totalitarian aesthetic or 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 this rituals you know people like uniforms you know i mean anarchists like uniforms everyone likes uniforms they're fun there's something fun i've always liked uniforms i always liked when people dress the same there's something odd about that because there's something kind of sinister and weird you see a bunch of people wearing the same outfit i mean if you just wore if everyone just wore uh just you know beige suits it would look strange you know i mean that's why like the, the maga hats look sinister and weird these little red hats you, you, look, you feel like you're looking at a limpid concert or something was the attire for partridge family temple like uh was it was there any any like specified requirements for just pretty much keep it psychedelic you know yeah i, I like to wear robes different people wear robes um people just wear psychedelic clothes you know we have our rituals and and uh I'm trying to finish up this. Uh, we're doing another, uh, put out a couple temple books. One's called uh, To Know God is to Love God. And then uh, the other one is The uh, Mystery of the Sleeping Keyboard. It was based on, uh, you know, like TV shows used to put out these mystery novels. You may have seen these. Like, it's like, yeah, so it's the part of me like it's like, you know, the mystery of Haunted Hill or something like that. And, and they have to, you know, they're all mysteries. And so I wanted to take that template and then make it a temple book. And so I took, you know, I wrote this book and made it like, like the show, like there's this, this great mystery and Lori gets kidnapped. And, um, but at the same time, it's, it's uh, mystical, psychedelic, you know, and, and funny, you know, over the top. And uh, so we're working, so the next, so I'm working on another temple book, with, uh, the Anne Frank Yoga Studio. We've been meaning to put that out, three practice Anne Frank Yoga. And so that's, uh, the next uh, what is the what is Anne Frank yoga studio uh Anne Frank yoga is, a, is a, another form of yoga and basically we identify like Anne Frank for me represents the anima uh the occult you know she's hidden and then the idea is she'd be very quiet because the Nazis would get her and we view uh we, we don't call them Nazis we call them brown goblins we believe everyone is a brown goblin and the potential uh to become an Anne Frank and so you have to be very quiet you know, silence is golden and uh, you'll survive and be liberated. And, um, but you have to also understand that the brown goblin is your friend and kind of like the higher you climb to God, the brown goblin is after you, but actually the brown goblin is, is spurring you onward, you know, so it's a, it's a merger. And uh-huh. uh, one, you know, uh, you can meditate and just chant as in the attic, so in the bunker. That's uh, was an earlier um, uh, uh, mantra chant. Because the idea is that Hitler is in the bunker, you know, he cube and uh, it's Hitler's mustache, but then he blew his brains out. He blew his ego out and he died. And then you're liberated. You go to the red, the yellow triangle. And that's the attic, the third eye. That's why Anne is, is a three-eyed Gemini and uh, the two become one. So, but it's a, it's a, it actually works. It's uh, action yoga, you know, it's, 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 it's boiling it down to a very simple trip, you know. So I think meditation, yoga, uh, I never, I used to think yoga was really square. I thought, oh, yoga's for old people. It's boring. And then I started having these dreams years ago about alchemy and yoga. I never knew anything about alchemy. I had no interest in alchemy. And I started to realize I was dreaming about them. In fact, I, when I was came up with the uh, Anne Frank yoga, I draw the black cube and the yellow triangle, the triangle for the addict and Anne Frank and the cube for Hitler. Then Seven years later, I get an alchemical calendar, and one of the images is a black cube, and right above it is a yellow triangle. So I was tapping into that without even realizing it. 
and the black cube represented the earth and um so, which makes sense you know what i mean so the bunker so it's it was in- interesting on is the new home 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 and yeah, yoga is, is it's fun. But what's interesting, yoga is so popular. Everywhere you go, you see people with the yoga mats. I was talking to this chick a few years ago. I go, I got into yoga because I had all these dreams about Kundalini yoga. No interest in that. And I started explaining the chakras and all that stuff, and uh, which you know sounds flaky. You have to deal with a lot of weird stuff. And uh, she goes, that's an interesting theory. And I thought, have you ever heard of Google? I mean, she practiced yoga like three to four times a week, and she knew nothing about chakras, kundalini, or anything. And I thought, why are you into yoga? Like, wouldn't you want to, like, look up what you're doing? Just Don't you want to read the ingredients on the package? Yeah, it just struck me as, as, as rather strange, peculiar. But I think that's a lot of... Um, I guess the people in the East, they're like, what, what do the Westerners do? They took God out of yoga. Uh, people, uh, yeah, people want a nice body, but not a nice mind. Yeah, they want a nice behind, I think, is what, they're, what the problem, the problem <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the finish. Yeah, I, I would never go to a yoga studio. But I could never go to a yoga studio because I know someone would fart. And I've asked you, yeah, people fart. I, go, I could never go there. I would start laughing. I just, you know, I, I, I used to be a born-again Christian. We used to have Bible studies. And this guy came from Australia and goes, I had testicular cancer, and I had to get rid of my testicle. And I just burst out laughing. I go, I'm so sorry. You said the word testicle. I go, he said ball. I went still laughing, but testicles were the funniest words on the planet. And uh, I just couldn't help it. Because, you know, I, I've always been that way. I just can't help but laugh. And uh, in a weird situation, like a lot of people have that thing. We just can't help it. You just start laughing. You know what I mean? So. Uh, the, apparently, the, that's like a condition where people have been talking about it with this, this new uh, Joker movie. Yeah. Yeah, we saw that movie. And it was weird. Right before we walked in, it's like this kind of nerdy-looking Encel-kind-of-looking kid with glasses. goes, hey, you going to see the Joker movie? He had these two backpacks next to him. I'm like, we're like, yeah. And then that made it kind of unnerving because he looks like some guy be an active shooter. So we're like, oh, great. We picked the one time to go see it, and some kids you know, just mow us down and leave the theater. So it added this heightened awareness while we were watching it because he just – no one's ever asked me, oh, are you going to go see the movie? Are you going to see the Joker? Like, so it was very strange. Hey, hey, Sean, you're a, uh, you're a cool guy. Don't come to school tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you're from, uh, from Denver, too, where they, they had that. Wasn't that where the shooting took place? At, yeah, Columbine, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was heavy. Yeah, Aurora, yeah. Uh, I think it's, is it Aurora? No, I think it's um, Arvada, I believe. But yeah, um, Oh no, that's the uh, the theater shooting oh, was also yeah in Aurora. Yeah, that's right. That was crazy. yeah. Yeah, yeah there's so many uh, shootings. People get so mad and and freak out. And you know, I can see it's, it's unnerving. I, I think about shootings all the time now. But I'm always fascinated. Like I always tell people, like, oh, you realize this is supposed to happen. Like everything on this planet that happens is supposed to happen. There's supposed to be dinosaurs, and then they're supposed to die. There used to be five foot tall prehistoric penguins for 30 million years that's weird and right now there's active shooters everywhere and it just happens and it's supposed to happen there's not much you can do about it and uh it's horrifying the world the world has never been a nice place you know what i mean 
it's a mean, brutal world. And uh, yeah, I'm surprised there's not more shootings. That's that's my reaction. I, I figured that like yeah, when you really look at it, you know, it's the world's safer than it's ever been, and you start looking at these shootings. I'm like, ah, oh, that's that's yeah. It. Well, I always wonder why every suicide isn't uh, a mass suicide. You're like, uh, yeah, they don't, they don't just take out a bunch of people with them. Yeah, I think maybe some people do the ones that actually are the shooters. Yeah, some of the shooters are actually sad. Um, or it's weird, yeah. If you have a real axe to grind. I remember the, oh, the first big shooting I remember, of course, was the McDonald's one. I think it was in 1984. And I remember I was horrified. I was like, what? McDonald's is a great place. This guy just went and killed a bunch of kids in the playground? I was horrified. I was like, I go, to me, like going to Disneyland or something. I was like, they're just having a good time eating a cheeseburger, you know, drinking a chocolate milkshake kill all the kids you know and all these people but that was the first big one and like you know and then the columbine happened but i would always i used to clip out um weird like news articles and there's always like weird shootings you know, like some trucker like at stuckey's drove his truck uh, texas like that through the window and shot people so it's been going on for a long time but just with social media i mean things have stepped up there's more of them but there's always been like weird shootings and stuff like that it just it just constant now. In fact, I, I find myself waking up and if I, there's nothing going on wrong, I feel weird. Like, oh, can't believe it has a, a terrorist attack or you know someone hasn't been shot by the cops or you know because there were, for a while there was a real run like just nonstop every day. There's like a you know a bombing and just crazy stuff. Uh, with on. the McDonald's shooting, I remember that that one's actually like stuck in my head just because. If I'm not mistaken, uh, the shooter was blaring the Patti Smith song, um, The Warrior, like the 80s ballad of The Warrior while he was doing it. I had no idea. Wait, wait, no, Patti Smith, not the the Patti Smith. No, pa- uh, Patti Smith with a Y. The, uh, okay, okay, yeah, the other one. Okay, yeah, okay. America, uh, from the band, it's like Scandal. Yeah, it's like I think that's I, I'm pretty sure that's the same shooting. It was a fast food shooting. I'm pretty sure it's because the McDonald's shooting was like eighty four, maybe. I, I yeah. think that adds up. I think that's I think that's the right one. That's really interesting. That would make make sense to bring a boombox. That's a good idea. To make it like weirder. sports players do this all the time, like like almost like they're going into battle and they listen to like heavy music. Yeah. Whether it's like rap or metal or something. And uh so it's like kind of like simulating battle or warfare, and uh, so that kind of like doesn't surprise me in a way that that to, to and I, I think that's almost like a um possibly more of like a masculine domain in terms of like the way that men listen to music and like what they get out of it is often often that that sort of like simulated energy or feeling of like of like just sort of like getting pumped pumped up for. Uh, you know, sur- surge of v- violent feelings, get that tos- testosterone pumping. Um, yeah, that whole like kind of weird, like, you know, listen to scorpions and stuff like that, you know, like, kind of pumped up rock. Yeah, luckily I never was into sports. I just, you know, I think of those like kind of like weird. Amp up, amp up that toxicity. <laughs> yeah, it's ma- <laughs> the toxic masculine people. That's, I love that stuff. It's like, Toxic. The only thing, the only time you should ever say toxic is if you're talking about the Britney Spears song, you know. And same with like a radical. Yeah, that's it. You know, Britney Spears is, is is a wonderful person. I just I follow her on Instagram, and I was just looking at her little clips today. She does these things like she's playing like classical music, and she has her yoga instructor. She's wearing a bikini, 
and she's doing these really elaborate yoga moves. She's like, I'm doing yoga in California in October, y'all. I'm like, this is so great. Instagram is a lot of fun. It's these pop stars, like letting you into their life. Her her Instagram is absolutely, and she looks like her eyes. She always looks like she's like MK Ultraed, you know. Isn't she <laughs> sort of like imprisoned? <laughs> what in Vegas? <laughs> no, she has like the, like her uh, father um, put her under some kind of, uh, I guess, effectively convinced um, the courts that. She, that she's like insane or something and, and isn't allowed to like leave the house or something. Yeah. She's trying to fight him. Yeah. Like he's trying to control her estate and stuff like that. Yeah. We, we had tickets to go and then her, and then her father got sick and we didn't get, to, we finally had tickets. We were going to go to Vegas. Me and uh, Kaleidoscope and Wellsong Partridge. And we were so psyched to finally see her. And then she canceled. We're like, no, uh, she's her music. Her last few albums are really, really good. Beautiful records. When did you start getting into jazz? Uh, well, my wife, Kaleidoscope, actually started this. Um, I never disliked jazz, but uh, mm-hmm. I always thought, because I like Nick's, I like abstract art. I, I like the, I, to me, jazz always seemed like this music from the future, this weird music. But I never listened to it, because also growing up in the 70s and 80s, everything was fusion, just really, you know, like Kenny G stuff and really hokey. Mm-hmm. And so my old lady was listening to uh, big band stuff. And one day she said some other jazz came on. And I go, you know, it was this guy Charles Mingus I heard once. And so we listened to the record. I go, that's really cool. And I forgot about it. And then we we're recording a Park Chile Temple record in San Francisco a couple of years ago. And me and uh, Wellsong Partridge are talking. and go, how many people have listened to jazz records in these places in North Beach? You know, it's Beatnik Central. And so we put the record on and it, it clicked. Like, and we just started listening to it. And then... And then I wasn't sure about the music, and then I heard about John Coltrane. I put, found him on YouTube, this album called Ohm. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that just blew my mind. I, no one ever told me that jazz musicians made music like that. It's like this like, just screaming noise. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember I go, what the hell? I go, I remember I got off the bus, and I went on the computer, I was like, this is probably like considered a masterpiece. And I was like, this is the most... I can't listen to this record. This is horrible. They're on acid. He didn't want it released. This is, and I was like, but that's the door that opened up. And then the next thing you know, we're, we're like just jazz crazy. But the thing is, you know, the saxophone has always, always been considered like a punchline. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, now they just seem like amazing mystical instruments. They're, they're strange. They're, uh, they sound like weird hypnotic droning laser beams or something. But a lot of people don't like jazz music. They don't. It's uh, it sells l- l- less than children's music. Yeah, I think it's like one percent of album sales, something like that. It's it's pretty low. It's yeah, quite unfashionable. And the weird thing is, they have all these jazz festivals all the time. And I don't know why people really like jazz because it's like because as I listen to it, it's very weird music. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. It's um, so I don't know why people. I can see like the real pretty ballad type stuff, but a lot of it's just—it's really hyper intense. Stuff. Well, it's strange to think that this was popular music. Well, yeah, well, in the twenties and thirties, like the big band stuff was really popular, but then like by the late fifties and the sixties, it got more avant-garde, mm-hmm. and it was like smaller clubs. And but that's like my favorite stuff. I think it's, it's brilliant. And then, um, uh, but it's interesting. We went and saw the Miles Davis uh, documentary a few weeks ago. And, you know, he's saying all these funny things. And all, people weren't even laughing in the theater. And there are all these, like, gray-haired, boring people, like the PBS people. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I associated with jazz. Like, just like, they're like, just not laughing. 
you know, he's saying hilarious stuff. And, uh, I mean, they laughed at a few things. But I was just like, these people are done. You know? If you want to talk about like really wild, uh, degenerate behavior, I mean, if you read like the Miles Davis autobiography, it's like chock full of it. <laughs> I mean, there's this like whole story about he's driving around in a cab with Charlie Parker, and uh, I think it's like a prostitute in the car. You know the story? It's like um, yeah, I, 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 I was yeah. yeah I, I was going to I read that book, and it's one of the funniest books in the world. And then I'm reading this Art Pepper book right now. That's what he was saying. But yeah, tell that story. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, as far as I remember it from the book, where it's like this uh, this lass is down on the on the floorboards, and she's like giving bird a <laughs> giving bird a BJ. Yeah, and um, while he's eating chicken, while he's eating a bucket of fried chicken. <laughs> And uh, Miles is like, but it's like, it's like stomach churning for him. I mean, he's just like getting disgusted naturally. Yeah. Um, so, he, yeah. he, but it's like, you know, Bird's also like kind of his, his hero, his icon. And he, he doesn't want to like create problems, but eventually he just can't handle it. And he's just like, you know, can you stop that shit, man? Um, <laughs> or at least, you know, just stop. He, he's like smacking his lips and he's just like, just, just like really get, really getting into it. Um, and he's, and it, yeah, the Charlie Parker's response is wonderful. He's just like, it's like, boy, you don't like what you're seeing? Stick your fucking head out the window. Yeah. <laughs> what I like about Miles Davis is he, cause he's such a fucking asshole. I mean, in the book, for instance, he doesn't, like, he brings up the fact that he hits women, but he doesn't apologize. He goes, I don't wish, I don't want to hit them, but they just make me so mad. You know, he doesn't, like, see this as a problem. Never apologizes, you know, he just smiles Davis. And he's just like, uh, but what's cool about him, though, he, he even though he's insulting Parker and stuff like that, he, um, well, always he respects them as musicians. He's like, man, we're doing this recording a record. He goes in some chick and he shoots up for two hours in the bathroom, holds up the whole, whole recording session. He comes out, picks his horn, plays beautifully. Because that's Charlie Parker for you. Once he does that, you know, he, and so he always respects them. He's like, man, that's good. You know what I mean? And, uh, and this Art Pepper book, yeah, this Art Pepper book. Have you read that book, Straight Life? I haven't. His autobiography? No. Oh, it's if you like the Miles Davis book, you'd, you'd like this. Art Pepper, this white cat, looked, looked like an actor. Uh, he, <laughs> he he literally, it's just the book's getting, I'm like halfway through, it's getting more and more crazy. He just got, he just got sentenced to go to San Quentin. He's a horrible junkie. And they didn't, they didn't even put him in narcotics. So like, oh, there's a new thing to do narcotics, uh, you know, uh, treatment. They're like, no, he's a hardened criminal gangster. They just hated him. And he's just this jazz musician. But the thing is, he was obsessed with never ratting. He was I the proudest day of my life. My lawyer said to just to, to turn around and say, I'm not a rat. <laughs> like he just, one of his friends said, you know, Art Pepper was an odd guy. I think he enjoyed going to jail. He goes, people knew who he was. Oh, that's Art Pepper, the jazz musician. And he got along with these scumbags, you know? And so he kind of, he, he was such an odd person. But he kept going to jail. He finally, he just got put in San Quentin to see what happens there. He apparently wanted to kill, he, they're robbing a place, and he wanted a gun. He goes, I want to kill these people. And this one guy's like, no, you're too violent and crazy. He goes, I took that as a badge of honor that I was the crazy one. This guy's a gangster. Just, you know, the guy could just have a good career, but he became this crazy, crazy uh, junkie and wanted to, like, kill people. And uh, it just really fast. Apparently, he, when he got out of San Quentin, he started some white power organization. Now, this is a jazz musician of all people who is friends with black musicians, you know? And he, he just, like, uh, it, 
He made his comeback, though, and then went straight and played for the rest of his life. But he, his story, and he thought he was the best. He goes, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the most attractive. I'm the best in bed. I'm the smartest. And that's the way I think. And I used to tell everyone this. And then I stopped telling people because it seemed a little odd to tell someone I was the best. But I felt I am the prince, and I still believe that. He's like one of the fun. He, he's talking about his wife who tried killing herself. He's calling her uh, a zero. Yeah, she's a real zero. <laughs> she should have killed herself. And just like, it was just, he's hilarious. And he has this, you know, hip way of talking, you know. It's, hey, it's groovy, you know. He's like this, like, hip 50s beatnik, you know, like a jazz cat, you know. And, uh, but like a West Coast thing, you know. It's a West Coast cool. And, uh, and he, he's like a genius because he, um, his, his, his girlfriend, he woke up and she goes, you have a recording session. He goes, fuck you. She goes, you got a recording session. He goes, I haven't picked up my horn in six months. I've been shooting smack. Who's it with? They go, Miles Davis' band. She's like, He's like, what the fuck? I go, they play every night. They're incredible. I haven't played in six months. He goes, but I have to do it because I can make money. So I grab my saxophone. I must have put it away high in smack. It's all glued together. So I'm pulling it apart to fix it. I fuck up the cork because that takes like five hours to fix. So I put some scotch tape, go down there, and I play the first song, and it's great. You know why? Because I'm a genius. That's why I do. I'm Art Pepper. <laughs> it's considered one of his best records. He hadn't played in six months. Woke up, shot some dope, went down there with Miles Davis's band, and just did a session. Considered one of his best albums. That, they, they said he was just a natural. He goes, a lot of these jazz musicians practice all the time, and he wouldn't because he never picked up his horn. But he just. But everyone, but everyone says he was really good. Everyone just. He goes, that guy's talented. And yet he decided to just become a dangerously insane junkie, like to the point of like robbing people. Uh, really good book. If you've liked the Miles Davis book, this, this book's up there with just craziness. Yeah, also, well, the Miles Davis book, I like how he says when they're recording sketches of Spain, like the classical cats, like they can't improv. And they're like, we can't do that. And so Miles Davis is like, I have respect for the composers, but not really for the musicians. They just can play along. They can't improv. And uh, so I, I have great respect for jazz musicians. Because, you know, I never cared about drums. I, I would always go, is John Bonham a good drummer? Is Mitch Mitchell a good drummer? I can't tell. It sounds cool. But jazz music, I actually listen to the drums. I'll be sitting there listening. What the fuck? You know, the drums are super engaging and interesting. So I would say that... Uh, the jazz music is definitely one of the most important uh, musical forms. Yeah, well, it's, it's hard for people to realize this now because it's it's like subsequently been placed into like you can go to you can go to like a concert you know all like major like music conservatories now for several decades now I've had like uh, jazz, you can major in jazz you know there's like jazz departments and. Um, and since they they kind of, they kind of like canonized it yeah. like after a certain period, you know, after 1965, you know, this music isn't part of the canon. This is they got too far out. Um, we we we're not going to talk about it. It doesn't exist. Um, so it's like it had this this wild like fermenting evolution, um, decade after decade, and then and then it was just like once it once it kind of became. Uh, sort of neutered by academia uh this it, it was put in, it was essentially just put into a museum left to die yeah well you know who's that guy who's this guy um marcellus winton Mar what's the right Winton marcellus Winton marcellus yeah he's the one i think 
he, his band in the 80s became like popular and he like was in part of like doing something in the Smithsonian with, with jazz and he did not like Coltrane and he um like only put like one Coltrane song well the later the later stuff yeah yeah and it's like in Coltrane is is, is, is he's my favorite jazz musician I, I can't even believe he existed the guy's literally magical I mean everything yeah, he does he, he's, he's brilliant I mean it just it's I mean ascension is insane it's like I mean it's just it's just so crazy they can make the most beautiful music in the world mm-hmm. and um I would, I would get to well, I want to time travel really bad anyway, but to see his band in the 60s, people would walk out. I mean, it was so loud. Him and Farrell Sanders just pounding and screaming. Elvin Jones, like, the most amazing drummer, like they said, he would just scream and terrify people. And they say his drums would overpower the saxophone. I mean, they, the, the John Coltrane quartet reminds me of Led Zeppelin. That's, I feel like I'm listening to just a rock and roll band. They're just so heavy and loud and powerful. It's like you. you like the other day, we're listening to Olay, and 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 my wife goes, "What are we listening to?" Because this sounds like some really super psychedelic music from San Francisco. I can't believe it's jazz. I go, "Yeah, it's like it's brilliant. It really is." Like that's the other thing. No, some of that stuff has like the energy of like death yeah, metal. Yeah, it, it, it's super intense. I would give anything to see like John Coltrane band like in a stadium as loud as the Who. People would fucking uh, probably have brain hemorrhages or something. They're so loud. This one critic said, he goes, he didn't like Coltrane, but he was a jazz critic. He says, in my time of going to jazz concerts, I saw John Coltrane one night. It got louder and louder and louder. He goes, I've never experienced anything like that in the form of this so-called jazz music. He goes, it stayed with me for days. It was so insane. I've never seen anything like that. And many people also said that John Coltrane when he played, it looked like he was getting larger. He'd like expand. And a few people said this. <laughs> you know, like he's like this force of nature. And then also people, I read this one book and a few of his like musician friends, they didn't want to go on the record with their name. They said he was eating a lot of acid. You know, he quit dope and everything, but he was doing a lot of acid. And so, you know, and then someone, and I, I don't know if this is true, there's some documentary. Someone said that apparently Coltrane had like out of body experiences on acid blowing, which would make sense because, you know, when you're doing that hyperventilating breathing stuff, I can imagine if you're blowing really, really hard, you probably end up on acid. It could have popped out of your body. It'd be pretty heavy. Oh, yeah. Well, he's talked about like uh, there were certain, towards the end, um, there was parts, there was like one show in particular where he like took the horn out of his mouth and just started pounding his chest and screaming and it was just he felt like he'd he had gone beyond the horn like it it was no longer um i have that record it had, had live at temple university right yeah right. It, oh, there's this one uh, this one concert and it doesn't sound good on speakers but better on your headset i was walking home this summer and i was listening to it and i just started laughing it's some i forget some concert i it, it, he just does two two songs i think it's just like my favorite things and something else and I'm listening to it. It literally sounds like the butthole surfers. I mean, it doesn't even sound like a horn. It sounds like it's like it's, I started laughing. It doesn't sound like a horn. I can't imagine what people were thinking. And it's a really bad recording. It sounds like it sounds better on the headset because it kind of surrounds you. Just this golfing, pounding drums like this. It literally sounds like a psychedelic guitar. And just I, I can't imagine seeing something like that live. Yeah, I think what's also interesting is like not only the um, energy and intensity increasing, but like also the duration, which I think was like largely inspired by listening to like uh, getting into like Indian music, which of course can mm-hmm. go on for like mm-hmm. several hours. And uh, yeah, I, I mean these these guys, you know, the, the sort of like social 
cultural uh, expansion where you know people are, are getting into like expanded consciousness and, I, consciousness and I think for like a black identity like they were kind of looking for maybe like non-eurocentric traditions to uh yeah to and that's another thing yeah totally and, and that's the thing because i was lied to by all these white um uh, uh writers and journalists because you know uh, there was there was you know jimmy hendrix was psychedelic and then the band love had like two black cats in there so there wasn't a lot of black musicians in the psychedelic scene and so i remember reading something years ago to like yeah, blacks didn't like to do, you know, acid because it wasn't groovy in the ghetto. And I'm thinking, like, well, then why did they do Angel Dust in the 70s in the ghetto? Because that was even more nightmarish. But anyway, um, but then when I got into jazz music, I was wait, they were. I, the jazz music is psychedelic music. They, they were doing acid and smoking grass. It's like they are doing it, but they're doing it in the music form, you know, uh, genre of jazz. So, yeah, it, it is. And they became even more psychedelic. Like, like Don Cherry is a perfect example. But like he's like the most hippie of the jazz musicians. Don Cherry, I mean, his stuff just gets weirder and weirder. He starts playing all these weird instruments, and, and at a certain point, the music just sounds like yeah. He kind of started world music. That's the funny thing because I hate world music, but all these guys basically created world music. It just like like everything was great in the fifties and sixties and early seventies, and then it became horrible. You know what I mean? So. Uh, you know, like the Beatles were great. Then all these other things they did were horrible. And so jazz musicians also, that horrible fusion music, the only good fusion really is Miles Davis. I, I don't like Wayne Shorter's fusion, Weather Report. Because Wayne Shorter is one of the most amazing composers out there, one of the most amazing saxophones. I mean, at times, I mean, his horn just sounds so strange, dreamlike. But I think that's what I like about it. It's that hypnotic, droney, alien sound. Who's, do, you, do you like Sonny Simmons? Yeah, yeah. Sonny Simmons is one. Yeah, I just got a double uh, Sonny Simmons album, Brilliant Experience. It's like, and I, I thought, how great to have a double jazz record. It's like the White Album of Jazz or something, you know? Just like this freak-out music for 79 minutes. I have a friend that, that played a session with him, and... Uh... It was, it was, uh, do you know Anthony Braxton at all, another saxophone player? Yeah, actually, um, the, the, uh, me and um, Point Me in the Direction, uh, Albuquerque Partridge, who started the temple, he went to Wesleyan, and his teacher was Anthony Braxton. He said he'd bring his saxophone and play really crazy shit in college, yeah. Yeah, so he was, he was, um, playing the session with Sonny Simmons with this, this drummer friend of mine. And the drummer was talking about how uh, Braxton like brought up this. Um, now we're going to do uh, composition one thirty four B with um, <laughs> the uh, extended coda, um, uh, atonalized and the demented minor. You know, whatever. Just going into this like yeah, hyper abstract yeah, yeah, yeah. realm. And uh, <laughs> so then Sonny Simmons, who's like the same generation, um, he he he's like, well, okay, you know, you think you're coming in here with your like complex charts? He's like. He's like, yeah, I got a con. I, you know, I composed too. I got something for you, and it was just like, uh, he just laid he th- aggressively, just like brought out, busted out this like sheet music, and just like put it on the stand, and it was just like one note. It was like like middle C or something, <laughs> but it was it was called you know like like uh, visions of Arabia, <laughs> so it's like jammed on that for for like an hour. No, yeah, Sonny Simmons is amazing. I'm trying to, his stuff is hard to get. Like, uh, I got, uh, have you ever heard uh, him and French Lachey, Firebirds? Oh, no, I haven't heard that one. They did, yeah, because I got into Sonny Simmons, I got uh, Elvin Jones's uh, first uh, Impulse solo record, Illumination, and we were listening to it, and I go, who are these horn players? And it was Sonny Simmons, French Lachey, 
And so that's how I started listening. And uh, Sonny Simmons and Prince Lachey did two records. Uh, I got Firebirds. I think it's one of the best jazz records ever. We were listening to it, and my wife goes, is that Moog? I go, no, it's a horn. And it just sounded, it's, it's, you're like, what is he doing? It's like, you're like real slow pulsing through the speakers. And then the other one is The Cry, and that one's really good, too. It's That one is, for some reason, extremely expensive, like $200. But I have Sonny Simmons' uh, Standing on the Watch's first record, and also his wife, Barbara, who was a white chick. She was a really fantastic trumpet player. And, um, but yeah, Sonny Simmons is great. It's like, he's, he's, he's really good. And it's oddly enough, he's still alive. Also, we love Archie Shep. We just bought tickets. Archie Shep is actually playing in Portland. Wow, and, yeah, um, yeah, he's still around. That was the other person... Yeah, I, that's what I heard because I read, read a Coltrane book, they got Archie Shep, and then I put Mama Too tight on. I go, what the hell is this music? Yeah, it's you know, amazing. It sounds like heavy metal music. Have you, have you heard uh, yeah, Magic of Juju? Super- I feel like that's right up your alley. Yeah, I got that too, yeah. Those, two, that, those two albums are just like insane. They're just so brilliant. But um, yeah, Archie Shep is just so great. So we couldn't believe that he's... Because he, he lives in France. He only does a few shows. And so... In February, he's playing the jazz festival here. We saw Pharrell Sanders last year. It was it was cool to see him, but he's so old he could hardly play his horn. Mm-hmm. So he just kind of danced around. So that was because you think of Pharrell Sanders, you think you want to hear like just screaming noise, right? And uh, he he could hardly play. But Archie Shep still can play. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't probably play as crazy as he used to be, but he, he's great. Mm-hmm. I, I read something about Archie Shep. He was at some doing some gig and. Some Jewish guy yelled at him like, you know, but the Jews had problems too. He goes, I'm so sick about you and the Holocaust. <laughs> and because he was like a really militant cat, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he was, and, um, <laughs> full black power. Yeah, yeah, he, he was like a total yeah. But he he's so good. He has a really weird, ruptured, raunchy, strange, noisy. In fact, the Miles Davis documentary is in there, and he's like, yeah, I walked up the Miles. I was like, can I sit in? My name is Archie Shep. He goes, who? He goes, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, but also you know who's I, I love Eric Dolphy. Do you like Eric Dolphy? Eric Dolphy's like my favorite of all time. Yeah, the, the thing about him that blows my mind is um, like he's the most identifiable tone. You know, like he it sound I mean, there's no one that sounds like Eric Dolphy. He sounds like a fun house. And I remember the first time I heard him, I was returning a record and I looked at and I, was, I go on YouTube to put my headset on. I go the album popped up. I go. If this album sounds as good, this album cover looks. And I hit the streets, and I felt like all of a sudden I was like in 1962, some like futuristic metropolis. The music is so insane. It's yeah, so yeah. great. Yeah, the first time I, I listened mean, to Out to Lunch in high school was like a religious experience. It's just like, what? <laughs> this, yeah, is, this is what I, I always like dreamed that this could. It kind of like, uh, you know, like I remember like um, you have people talking about punk, and it just sounded like, oh, this, this wild like anarchist music. And then it was just just uh you know the whole thing of like split sped up blues chords and so forth and then then i later heard like no wave and it was like okay yeah that's you know mars and dna it's like yeah that's that's closer to what i envisioned and it was kind of like um like with jazz i i sort of knew that there was this this uh level that it it had gotten kind of wild and but it but i hadn't kept trying to like find that stuff and and then it was like hearing that record like everything clicked yeah yeah totally that, and that's yeah i remember in fact I, when i brought it home that night i was sorry i almost felt depressed like, i don't think I've ever heard, uh, i'll ever hear an album as good as that. i thought that was just, what was that i mean that's just like and the fact that's his last record before he died you know tragically it's like 
And that to me is like Coltrane's so good, but like listening to them together perform, it's like it's almost like you shouldn't be in the same room. You're too intense. You know what I mean? It's like you know, one speaker is Eric Dolphin and Coltrane ripping in. You're like, what the fuck? And it's just you know, uh, it's just mind blowing. But yeah, he's okay. It's sad that he died. There's a documentary on YouTube. I don't know if you've watched it. I started watching it the other day. Some obsessive guy. I think he owns his like horn. He's French or Dutch or something like that. But it looks pretty good. But, oh, what's amazing is I was really stoned watching it. And you always read about these things and hear about these things. They're saying how when he was playing with Mingus, he decided to stay in Europe. And they're talking to one of the bandmates. He's old now. And he goes, yeah, Mingus was real mad. I thought it would end there. Also, they show them about to perform in black and white. They're being filmed. And Mingus is going, and, and, you know, of course, Mingus is violent and very intimidating. He's like, so Eric's going to be here for a month in Europe or a year. Be a month or a year. And Eric's like being real mellow going, maybe a month, maybe a year. He's what's it going to be, Eric? What'd you say, though? It's going to be a month or a year. And it's just such a tense scene. And to actually have that on film is so far out. You're like, wow. And then, of course, the professionals, Mingus just starts bawling his bass. And I've never seen someone play a flute. <laughs> such an intense situation. But uh, it's just a flute. But <laughs> you can feel the energy in the room. If you, know? you guys keep talking about jazz, I can like try to sell this shit to like an NPR affiliate, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like getting into that vibe. <laughs> Yeah, well, the temple, you know, I, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a, 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 a new project coming up. But I don't want to really say anything about it until it gets more movement on that for the temple. And then, yeah, just trying to get that Anne Frank yoga book. And um, we've been working on the Parvage Bible to put out and, um, you know, stuff like that. And this record, it's it's recorded. Seven of Partridge, uh, he does all the music. He, he's, he's fantastic. And... Um, so uh, that should be coming along. In fact, if anyone listening to this uh, podcast who's into psychedelic music, Seven of Partridge makes music, and he, under his secular name, Walker Phillips, he has a great record called My Love Sunday. And he put his old ladies album out by Cara Paravel, Mirror Mirror, and they're just super psychedelic. Like If you like like really authentic late 60s, early 70s, psychedelic hippie folk music, it's, it's really groovy stuff. But uh, he's, he did the Temple album, and he's actually recording right now with Boyd Rice. He's doing some. I'm really curious what's going to be. It's like he I put a little clip of like something they were doing, like uh, playing sitar backwards. So it, it could be like some super psychedelic Boyd Rice record. Well, I was thinking um, when you were talking with the about the Anne Frank Yoga Studio stuff, like these sort of Gnostic ideas. Um, did, did you conceive of the Partridge Family Temple as, as sort of like some contemporary brand of Gnosticism for the television age? No, but it, but it is that. But but I didn't I didn't think of that. You know, when it's this is the thing about the, the Partridge Temple. It, it really was. Uh, just a second. It started out. We didn't start out to start a cult. I mean, it really was. You know, it wasn't like Psyche TV that were you know they used the symbols and it became a cult. We literally just loved the Partridge Family. And we're obsessed with it. My friend Adam Sleek had the record. I listened to it one day. I saw the light. And then I, um, uh, uh, Dan pointed me in the direction of Albuquerque. I was like, you got to listen to this music. And, and we were driving down the street one day. And I go, you know what? This is Eric Clapton's God. I go, these are the gods. These are the real gods. Barbage family. And so we were just obsessed with it. We'd listen to it all the time. And uh, I remember my friend Maynard, he would flip out and go, why are you listening to this? This is not cool music. 
He goes, there's a lot of cool underground bands, man. Like Sonic Youth are cool. And <laughs> yeah, and we were like, no, no, the Partridge family. And the great thing about the Partridge family, it opened up all, all, all these avenues, you know, because all of a sudden, like, what's good music? Like, all of a sudden, everything was cool. You know, the Brady Kids, ABBA, everything. Realized there's so much stuff. You know, the teachers, all all this amazing bubblegum music. It's just like, we started to notice how powerful that music was. But yeah, we started to notice that they're, they're the archetypes, the characters. And it's, you literally can go, you could spend days, weeks, just watching the Parsons Family TV show and find connections. I mean, there's so many weird connections. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Did you ever consider the idea that uh, the television itself was the Divine Father, which impregnated Shirley Partridge, whose character was subsequently uh, killed off? No. <laughs> she was impregnated by a few different things. She wasn't pregnant by Alan Funt um, from Candid Camera. But um, television, though, is God. Like, like that, in fact, me and uh, Point in the Direction, Albuquerque, who started the temple, that's how we bonded when we became friends. We both loved television. And so I was staying that some of my mom's house and I would like watch TV and watch my sister and then on the weekends go up to Boulder. And so I didn't like Mary Tyler Moore. And and Point in the Direction said, You gotta watch it's a great show. And so we we'd watch it and we'd call each other afterwards and compare notes. And uh, that's that's how we became friends. We just loved TV because people were always making fun of TV. Oh, TV sucks, fuck TV, kill your TV. And me and Dan we just love TV. You know what I mean? And so that's that's really how it started. We just love television. And what's great about this is everyone watches TV now. All these like you know, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Sopranos. And for years, it was like, I don't watch TV. You know? And now everyone's like, what's your favorite show? What are you watching? And it's like, we won. Right. And this idea of like binge and, watching uh, is, it sounds, it sounds like so revolting <laughs> to me. <laughs> it's like, like uh, pe- people like really wanting to like immerse themselves uh, as, as a kind of like escapism. Yeah, but, it, but there is something really fun when you're being, yeah, but there is something really fun, like, when it's like wintertime, you want to be cozy, it's like, and if you have a good show you've never seen before, or you're going to watch again, it's just, it's fantastic. And also, like, a lot of these shows now are written so well, there's multiple layers, and so they're actually, like, engaging. You know, like, I don't know if, if you, did you guys watch Mad Men? Um, I watched the first, like, I watched the first season of Mad Men, and I thought it was wonderful. I wished I'd, I need to watch more of it. Um. I really liked what I've watched, though. I tell you right now, if you guys are into mysticism, are you guys into mysticism at all? Or yeah, to a certain degree. Yeah, very much so. During season six, I looked at Kaleidoscope and I go, "This sounds really weird." But I think the show is about yoga. The show is this, uh, what, and then we watched it again. The whole show is buried with symbolism. The whole show is about yoga, the tarot. Um, I'm not kidding. It's it's nuts. It's like, and I don't. I thought by now people would have picked up on this. I did a Twitter thing called Magna the Mysticism. Don't look at it because we'll give things away. And the very last episode, I was for two years. And Kaleidoscope is always like, she'll like agree with me or not agree with me. It was the first time she looked at me very strange. She'd go, are you sure about this? My friend Stephen Up Partridge, he told me afterwards, he goes, you know, Sean, I thought you were going crazy. Because I kept talking about how mad it was about yoga. And I don't want to say how it ends, but let me say I was right. That's all. I, 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 my eyes are bugging out of my head, and we were like, "Did that just fucking happen?" And so, um, the show is really it's it's like, like the opening credits, like you know, Don's falling. It's like Lucifer falling from heaven, and it's it, it's also represents it's all the solar symbolism and duality and and um, uh, fertility. It's all about uh, like Shakti, the, the Indian concept of power, divine feminine. It's 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 really far out, and it's also a really funny show. And it's really well written, but. 
if you haven't seen the show, you should really, people always say it's boring, but give it a shot. Once you get sucked in, it, it gets better and better and better. And it's really funny. The eroticism of Don Draper is like very, like, it's like a vampire. When he goes with the Jewish chick, he's been up all night long. And you know how shows are like sometimes like uh, telegraph things like Roger has a heart attack and he's, he tells the two girls he's fucking, he's like, I want to drink your blood. And then later he has a heart attack and then Don goes to talk to Rachel Menken. And he goes there, it's still nighttime. And she, and then Kaleidoscope pointed out, She's wearing her night clothes, like all those like Dracula movies, like the woman's always wearing like her like night, night clothes. And he goes, can I come in, you know, and she has to like be invited in. And then you notice when you watch it, when he goes to kiss chicks sometimes, it looks like he grabs her neck. So there's a, little, there's a scene where this one chick goes, boy, I usually get by um, flies, but I got no blood. But boy, I'm getting really bit tonight. And then she opens the door and he goes and he fucks her. And so there's all, all these scenes like that, you know, where he's like a vampire. So just weird stuff like that you wouldn't notice, but that's and that's kind of what I'm talking about with these new TV shows. They're so like layered; you can watch them over and over again, and notice things and go well, that's far out. If if uh, television is God, uh, going by that rationale, how do, how do uh, how does it play into where uh, where do like computers and internet and uh, smartphones and all that uh, come to how are they how are they symbolized? And I think that TV is God. Yeah, I think TV is God. The computer is, uh, I, I felt like like Jesus, like your personal savior, like your a personal relationship with God is like, I always thought a computer. But now there are iPhones. I think iPhone is actually Jesus because that's a real personal relationship you have. You take it everywhere. It's your best friend. You're always with it, you know. So I think the computer now is stationary computers like a, uh, is the Holy Spirit, but uh, the iPhone is like Jesus. Yeah, they're great things. They're, 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 you know, of course they, they drive you up the wall. But um, like I did acid uh, a few weeks ago, and, I was sitting there, and every time I picked up the iPhone, I go, "Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be on the iPhone today. This is silly." But after five hours, it said like Trump said something, so I clicked on there and read his tirade. He was going on about impeachment, and it really just hit. I was like on acid. I'm like, Trump is president. It just seemed even weirder. And then I'm reading what he's writing, just screaming and insulting everyone. I'm like. And I'm looking out the window. It's a beautiful autumn day. People are smiling. And, and I'm like, this is my world. This is my planet. Donald Trump is president. I'm on acid. And yet somehow this is happening. It just seems so strange. So Albuquerque is is represented. That's the, the heaven in the religion, right? Yeah, that's a promised land or enlightenment. It's New Mexico, you know, Albuquerque. There's a song pointing in the direction of Albuquerque. So that, that became our thing. You know, Albuquerque's coming down fast. Is there a hell? I think hell is uh, anything that's not groovy, really, you know, and I think that people pretty much are a hell, you know, I think, well, I think this blue marble session is heaven and hell. And some people have more heavens and will have more hell, you know, but um, we, I think hell. What's the blue marble session? Uh, the, 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 the planet Earth, Mother Shirley. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. The, 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 the late great planet Earth. Remember that book? I always liked that. Uh, to me, life is Vietnam. You know what I mean? It's just this ongoing war. Life is war. It's warfare. It's this uh, conflict. So God is conflict. God is resolve. But you have to have that conflict, you know. And all these people that flip out, all these PC freaks nowadays, it's like, if you were to take away the shows and things they liked, because a lot of the things they like have conflict and violence. If you took away their stuff, they would cry like babies. I want to watch that. No, it's offensive. There's death. 
you can't watch it. You know, I, I worked with this guy who was horrible. He's this comic book guy. And he was probably one of the worst people I've ever met in my life. And he would say, oh, you're Sean, you're into really twisted things. And that was really mellow at this job. I didn't say anything that odd, but he, he was just a baby. He didn't understand anything about anything. He was just this whiny, whiny creature. But he was obsessed with video, violent video games and comics. And he's like, oh man, these people. And I always think like, if it, but he always complained about violence. I thought if you didn't have villains and darkness, you'd be so bored. You would have no life. You'd, what would you do? You know, you right? Need, struggle and adversity is like key to having that adventure. Yeah, and comedy. It's like you know, like what Larry David was saying. Like they're like, yeah, without conflict, there's no comedy. You know, it's uh, you need to have that. Did you guys see the Joker? Do you guys like that? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I didn't didn't particularly. I, I I had an interesting take on it that uh, the whole angry white male narrative doesn't really stick because the guy. First of all, the the last the guy's last name is Fleck, Jewish last name, and he's played. But secondly, he's played by a Jewish Jewish actor. Is he Jewish? Ha, well, half, but you know, according to Jewish doctrine. If, oh, if the oh, mother is Jewish mom. Jewish mom. Oh, so Fleck was so the Joker's Jewish. I think that's what's being implied. So yeah, I'm not. It kind of like deflates that whole idea. I was wondering too because uh, the implication is it almost seems like he was sexually abused by the man in the movie. The her his mom's the way they kind of almost say that because people are complaining about the Gary Glitter song being used and who, who doesn't love Gary Glitter? But um, I thought that's great. In fact, that to me was the highlight of the movie. But I thought maybe he was implying the pedophilia stuff because he was molested or something like that. Uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't consider that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think about that at all. But yeah, I was really into the whole unreliable narrative narrator. Excuse me. Yeah, I like the idea that I just didn't particularly like it that much. But I like the idea of it, and uh, and also Robert De Niro bothers me so much nowadays. It was fun watching him be shot because he, you know, he's been making shitty movies for fucking years. That was another highlight. I was like, good. He's just always running his mouth. And he's, I I think it's interesting with the uh, the whole like the journalist really playing up the like oh like incel fantasy blah blah blah, and then you actually watch the thing, and I think it makes them so uncomfortable because it it's like a Marxist fantasy played out. Um, it's like the logical conclusion, like. You know, if you want a revolution, this type of revolution, like blood must be spilled. And then like maybe on some level, these people can't deal with um, their ideology, like leading to violence. That's the way it's like a deconstructionist, like Marxist film in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was because like the the Joker mask was like the Guy Fawkes mask he was wearing a few years ago. They're wearing this. In fact, they've been wearing that in China at the protests, right? Like recently. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And then along uh, with the Guy Fox and yeah, yeah, and the it, Winnie the Pooh. Have you ever, Sean? Have you ever faced any uh, kind of pers- persecution for your religion? Yeah, people. Some people, you know, because well, I used to do these obnoxious pranks, stuff like that. So people don't. Some people don't like me. The article was written. A couple articles. Uh, this one guy wrote an article. Oh, and what, just like, what were some of the pranks? Oh, just differently. Well, kind of like that. You know, where I actually like the uh, retarded person. I, just I, I did this performance. There's this punk band I used to perform with in Denver. I do these weird things, and they go, "What do you want to do?" And I go, "I don't know. Give me a megaphone, or we're all yellow." They go, "No, we're a Nazi uniform." So I got a Nazi uniform, and 
there's all these black bodyguards. And so I had to go, I'm not a Nazi. We're doing a performance. And like, okay, cool. And I went up there and what I, the band would play. And in between songs, I would just yell really offensive things with the megaphone. And while they were performing, I would dance like this spastic, retarded person. And people, I, this friend of mine was a hippie chick. She started throwing ice and she was crying. I, I looked at her like, you know me. And my friend was watching the, 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 the concert and he goes, this one guy was laughing his head off going, this is like Monty Python. You know, there's people who got it, but there's people who like literally thought this is the worst thing in the world. So you do stuff like that. It's, it's to me, it is like, cause my earliest memory of comedy was uh, my sadistic uncle Joey goes here. I was visiting Albany where I'm from New York. And he goes here, read this. And he gave me all these natural lampoons. And he goes, watch this. And he put Monty Python on. And it was like, the veil was lifted. I go, I finally found my comedy. And um, National Lampoon was just, you know, just some of the most twisted, weird stuff in the 70s. And uh, so I, I love that stuff. But so that to me, like those kind of things to me, was just political correctness just was annoying. So I used to like do these things just to upset people. But now with my art, I, I actually go the opposite thing. I'll, I'll use sort of unpleasant subject matter, but to me, it's all about God or alchemy. Um, um, when I was younger, I used to like to just, just, just to piss people off to make them cry, basically. But th- now that's not my... my uh, not you were one of the founding people who started Unpop, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was painting these paintings. I, I, used to, I went to this period where I hated art, and then um, these weird connections happened where I had to get back into art. And the final straw was I moved in with uh, my wife, Kaleidoscope, before we got married, and I was reading this Andy Warhol book. I used to hate Andy Warhol. And I'm reading it, and someone hang up to artist Robert Rauschenberg. And then the phone rang, and it was our landlord. It said Rauschenberg. I go, that's weird. I go, maybe he's related. That'd be really funny and weird. And so I asked her, hey, ask him, and because he, he had to come over to fix something. She goes, are you related to Robert Rauschenberg? He goes, that's my dad. And to me, that was the sign from Shirley. I go, well, I have to start doing art now because these weird connections had happened. Because uh, Robert Lichtenstein had died a few months before that, and I was talking to my old girlfriend. I go, you know, I should blow up comics like that one pop artist. I should do like banana splits in the Partridge Family comics. And go, what's his name? She goes, I have no idea. And I go, you do. He's famous. He did those gigantic comic book panels. And I was pacing the floor. I could not remember his name. I went to bed. I woke up. The newspaper was under the door. It said, famous pop artist who did comic book panels dies, Robert Lichtenstein. And, uh, I, I go, that's weird. So just these kind of weird synchronicities start happening with art. That's how I start painting. And then um, uh, Brian Clark came to visit, and he was talking to Boyd about the art, and Boyd's like, we should do an art movement. And so that's how that happened. And it was a good idea, I think, um, taking these things. But for me, personally, I, I felt that uh, the art that I was doing was more tuned into like sort of like mystical stuff, God. And not everyone in Unpop, of course, believes in God or, or was into that bag. So, and then we just, it just kind of dissolved. So, Unpop, as far as I understand, it was like taking unsavory subjects and then and then putting it through the filter of of like pop art, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, trying to, yeah, trying to look at like you know fun stuff or the weird stuff. Like I think some of the best stuff in Unpop was um, found objects, mm-hmm. like weird things that actually existed in the world. They're like, what the hell is that? That's so strange you know it's really like there's just odd things out there you know you, you can't believe it exists so so how we how how did the divine 
fit into that? Well, for me, because I paint Anne Frank and John A. Ramsey, I paint these uh, end heads, this racial, uh, uh, it was just, uh, well, they were called niggerheads. And that's, that, that's how I became, I started becoming fascinated with racism when I was younger. And I was listening to a lot of rap music. And I noticed when you listen to rap music, people that I knew would say, that's nigger music. And I was like, what? You're a racist? I, you know, I was like fascinated by this. Like I never, rap music, I remember like being at a party, I put Public Enemy on, these like surfers, like soon they're all going to beat me up. They're like that's anti-white music. And I was like, it just, and then they go, put something cool. And they put Sonic Youth on. I was like, what? I go, I almost got beat up for listening to Public Enemy. And these dudes put Sonic Youth on. I go, I'm in the future. This is the early 90s. I go, things are getting weird, man. And uh, so I just became fascinated by racial stuff. And I remember I saw that picture and I just became so obsessed with it because it doesn't look like a human. It looks kind of like Alfred E. Newman. It just looks so disturbing. I had this mental flash. I go, can you imagine being a black kid and going into a store and seeing that image on like, I think it's like some sort of like uh, stove cleaner or something like that. Can you imagine being a human being and walking into a store and seeing this distorted grotesque version of a black person and thinking that's what they think of me you know and it's such a fascinating piece of art but i started collecting racial newspapers and i started because i hated art back then and i thought i go you know these people are writing this really horrible racial artwork and are drawing it and they go a lot of it's actually really good and i thought that's the next thing for art i go can you imagine if you took this artwork and did really big silk screens and hung them on the wall in a gallery, I go, it'd be really fascinating. And um, I still think that's a good idea. But that was one of the inspirations for it back in my mind, you know, like, because I go, a lot of these artists who do, do this racial stuff, I go, I bet when they were kids, they were like, hey, Timmy, draw me a picture. You're really good. Here's a quarter, you know. But for some reason, they decided to pursue an art career, like doing ghastly racial artwork you know but i became fascinated by by that stuff and some of it was really good some of it was really horribly crude you know and uh, i thought that's an interest i think that would be an interesting um so that's kind of the idea of unpop is looking like looking at um the ghastly stuff and seeing the beauty in it or the, or the, it, it, what's interesting you know but now even at the time people were freaking out now it's like you know can you imagine people just like you're just wrong you're just a bad person to to see that. But I think that's, I think me and my friends are the positive people. We look at things in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could see that as being kind of like alchemical, right? Where it's like you're, you're taking yeah, the, the darkest stuff and then transforming yeah. it into something like fun and beautiful and uh, hilarious. Yeah. It's letting the gold. It's yeah. It's, like, it's funny. Cause like every so often, like kaleidoscope for me will say like, I'll wake up to go to the bathroom. And I look around, I just got these gigantic paintings of John and Ramsey all over the place. And it's like, I don't think about that because they're psychedelic. You know what I mean? But sometimes I look at her and I'm like, what the hell is this dead kid on my wall? You know? And it's, it's just, it's like a weird thing. Like it looks kind of morbid sometimes, you know, and Anne Frank everywhere, you know, you think if you die of typhoid, you're in a concentration camp. But to me, they're like positive. They're like uh, saints to me. So. Yeah. That, well, that's what's great. Like when you can live with stuff in your house and, and you can, you know, you, you're living with it. So you're looking at it every day. And you could just see how it how it like transforms, and then you're kind of reminded when people come over, or had or had people coming over for the first time, and and they they kind of like bring you back into that initial perspective of like what that would look like if you had never seen it before, you know? 
Yeah, and also what's interesting because I've had people come over and they don't know what it is. Like, very, like you know, like sometimes people don't. They just think it's just weird art. They don't recognize. Like, a lot of people do not recognize John Mayer Ramsey, and um, people will recognize Anne Frank more. But um, but I've had black friends come over who didn't even recognize the heads I painted. They just they, they think they're just Martians or something. I think that's fascinating because I paint them in day glow. So they're just like, that's a weird painting. They don't even think, oh, that's a racist. You know, that, and I think that's. That's the idea of art is to transform things, to make things different. And, you know, it's funny because I painted them. I'm like, now that I listen to jazz music, I, I kind of sit there and look at it in a strange way. You know, it's like, because um, the end head has transformed over and over again in my life. Like my first initiation to me, it's, it represents lead, the negrito, the beginning of the alchemical great work. And then when George Bush is president, it looked like George Bush for me for some reason, uh, W. And then when I'm really stoned, it looks like me. I go, is that me? <laughs> I'm really paranoid. It's this grinning, weird face. I go, I painted myself. And now I look at them, I think of jazz musicians. So, <laughs> like, it's not necessarily like an inverted practice of, from like what what Warhol himself was doing. He yeah. actually did. I, I consider the original unpop because he did that um, silk screen of these women who died. It was a newspaper clipping of these women who who died of eating spoiled uh, tuna. And this woman goes, yeah, you know, he goes, you know, Andy and all of his gay friends had the most darkest sense of humor. He's like, oh, we got to do this. Let's make a silk with those two dead women who died of tainted tuna. Like, it's dark shit. He did the car crashes and the electric chairs. So he is like the epitome. He is the first unpop artist, you know. And Andy Warhol and John May Ramsey share the same birthday. So that's groovy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if he was alive today, I'm sure he was on a John May Ramsey uh, painting, you know. And he was so smart. He did like what Chairman Mao, because that's the cre- if he did Hitler, everyone would be mad. But Chairman Mao, for some reason, is like, oh, that's cool. Even though he's like a murderer, so it's a, the weird logic of art, you know. Yeah, because the, the rhetoric is softer. Yeah, very strange. Mm-hmm. But what did Tony Soprano say? What are you going to do about it? What would uh, what would your advice be for starting a religion for anybody out there listening who uh, who could potentially be a cult leader or um, start their own new age religion. Is there any advice you would be willing to give? Uh, it has to be sincere. It has to be pure. It, it can't, you can't really invent something. Like I said, you know, um, the temple never, we just started doing this stuff. Like it, it's called the parts temple because we called the, the, the church of the part of Tony, a different names. And then pointing in the direction made these stickers and the font for temple matched the letters for the Partridge family. And so that's how it became the Parsonite Temple. So it was like a real slow process. Like things just kind of fell into place. But it literally was something that just kind of we, – we didn't try to really do it. I mean we do fun things. It was like, well, let's go and have fun, you know, put stickers up like that. But it just – it kept growing and growing. And um, and then for me at a certain point when I got into Carl Jung, I was like – I was talking to point me in the direction of Albuquerque. I go, a religion should help people, you know. And I think that's the, the idea because the, the Parsonite Temple is a very loose organization. You can come and go. It's a gateway cult. You know what I mean? It's like whatever leads you to your personal happiness, you know, do it. You know what I mean? So I, I think anyone can try to do religion or a cult, but it has to be sincere. And if it sticks around, you know, there's something there. And I think that the Parchley Temple, because that's what's far out. It's like, why does it affect people? But people really get turned on to it. It does something, and I'm and I always chuckle. I go, people, the 
Partridge Family, McDonald's, you know, all this weird stuff. And yet people, it hits, it hits something, you know, it touches, uh, hits a spot for some reason. Maybe a dumb question, but did you, did you imagine it to last as long as it has? No. I mean, well, actually, well, yeah, for me, I, I always listen to Partridge Family, but I, it just, it just kept, what's interesting is it just keeps growing and, and changing. And like, I did this uh, website, was writing all this stuff and Wellsong Partridge saw it. He joined the temple. He started all this amazing artwork and he does all this great temple artwork, and he just made the temple even more popular and more people because he knew how to reach more people. And so, just getting more and more members, and people seem to be happy. And I, 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 and I do. I think the goal of religion it's not like an uptight, controlling cult or anything like that. There's no real hierarchy. People just do their thing. It's loose. You know, like I say, it's like the, you know, in the Soprano, they say art this this thing of ours. You know, this is this for us. It's like this far out thing of ours. You know, and that's what it is. Well, it's interesting because some people have, uh, like some of the some of the Satanists, or uh, yeah, I think like chiefly like somebody like Boyd Rice who, who renounced Satanism, but it, I don't, as far as I know, uh, never never stopped being a partridge. Yeah, no, no, he he loves the partridge family, and that's how we met him because uh, uh, Point in the Direction uh, put a temple sticker on his uh, uh, turntable at the bar he would DJ at. And he got really excited because he goes, I love the Partridge family because I love them so much. I had Keith Parker chair when I was a kid. He goes, I liked them more than the Brady Bunch. So he was really excited. And then he was DJing. We went up there. We saw him. We started talking. He goes, hey, I should do an interview with you guys. And so well, he did an interview with us in front of the Mork and Mindy house. And uh, then we just became friends. And he turned us on to Bobby Sherman. Uh, he goes, have you heard Bobby Sherman? We're like, no. He's like, he's like the flip side of the Partridge family. He goes, he was this bubblegum pop star, but he's like deaf. He's, he's, and his lyrics really are weird. There's a song called Time. And this is music for like eight-year-olds. He's like, time, we all die from time. You know, look in the mirror, who am I now? I mean, he has really weird lyrics. He has a song like, let your mind be your captain. Let your body be the ship. Everyone can be their own Jesus. I mean, what kind of lyrics is that for an eight-year-old? It's just really far out stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, so... Truth is in the strangest places if you look at it right. And uh, part showing is a, a bus anyone can hop on. And, you know, uh, pointing in the direction, he said years ago, someone asked how many members are there at the temple? And he says, every single person on the planet is a member of the part temple, even if they don't know it. And that's the truth. So we have more members than any church on the planet. Well, sir, uh, Maybe see you one day in Albuquerque. Yeah, great talking to you, cats. And uh, you, hey, great talking to you, Sean. Yeah, you guys have a groovy night and uh, twenty-four hours a day. <laughs> twenty-four. That's the. Uh, isn't there like a rapper that says it just says like always oh, just like twenty-four, like twenty-three? <laughs> Wait. Oh, twenty-one. Who does Who that? Is... Twenty-one Savage. Twenty-one Savage. 21. <laughs> uh yeah he was but i like 24 because it's a 24 7 fun so it's just short shortening that I, I presume that that's what that's about yeah he was a delight yeah yeah true ball of joy like real real uh peter pan it's like uh people that have have like peter pan syndrome um usually it's like a situation of you know, somebody who's like a like a man child or like an adult baby or something. But it's like imagine if you if you could like 
retain the childlike sense of play <laughs> and uh, elegantly do that into adulthood and middle age and um, still like, yeah, well, like the, the be a balanced person and like be able to to handle like the heavier or darker sides of life and carry your own um, weight, be responsible. Just right off the gate, just going in about like fast food. It's fucking awesome. It's like junk pop yeah, I mean, the, culture. The moment, moment of grit and the fact that he was having a uh, transcendent religious experience in a McDonald's, imagining himself sort of like in the doing the I am you and you are me uh, with with every every player and character that was that was in the room, just having having this holy moment of like uh just like out of body uh, consciousness that he was he was like like resonating with <laughs> with everybody in the McDonald's cash he yeah he was the cashier the fry he was the cook. cashier the customer and the <laughs> all at once the man he, he also, also he, I think he said the manager as well the manager yeah ah yeah. yeah. oh, man yeah that was uh that was fucking wonderful i think i might join yeah, I mean, it, the charismatic cat uh, makes it makes a case for for the uh, the groovy religion there. I just want a good name, like whale songs, pretty good. Yeah, it's interesting because um, he had a he had a well. I know everybody has to change their surname to Partridge, um, and there's what point me in the direction of, of Albuquerque Partridge whale song. Um, what is it? Kaleidoscope is his wife, and then yeah, Kaleidoscope. But he ha- didn't, and then he, he had a name himself, Partridge in a Partridge in the Pear Tree. Right. Well, right. there we go, another one, another one in the bag. Um, uh, this has been the Exile Hour. Thank you for listening. Twenty-four. Thank you for listening to the Exile Hour. Please tune the next episode for another very special guest. We appreciate your patronage. If you have any suggestions for future guests, hate mail, blackmail, or another type of message, please do not hesitate to write to the Exile Hour at ProtonMail.com. As always, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening.